Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. We're presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app today and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. He's a NASA climate scientist and an activist, and I have seen him talking and break down crying. I've read about him getting arrested. He is worried about what we're doing to the environment. And Peter Kalmus, I am having you on with us now because I need not just your expertise, but I need some help in being able to talk about this because it is so gloomy and hopeless and helpless that I don't know how to talk to my audience about this without being a doomsayer, even if I'm just factually looking at what science is telling me and science is warning me of the apocalypse. So thank you for joining us and thank you for bringing your expertise here. How can I reach my audience with what is happening right now and not have my audience just feel completely helpless and hopeless about what's happening? Well, um, one thing that kind of makes me a little bit hopeful is that in my opinion, as a species, we barely tried to stop this. Like we barely put in that effort. We're not treating this like an emergency. It is an emergency. So I'm hoping that if we shift into emergency mode and uh, a huge number of us start really pushing to make the kinds of changes that we need. I mean, the changes aren't, um, they're not rocket science. They're, we need to, the cause here is burning fossil fuels. So we have to ramp down the fossil fuel industry and the faster we do it, the more that will save, you know, and we're going to have to reckon with that. I mean, it's uh, we're we want to we want to go into Star Trek. We want to burn more and more fossil fuels and send spaceships up, which also run on fossil fuels. But we're I think as a species now we should be switching into like this is life or death and we have to start treating it as life or death. Take a step back, kind of um, reassess where we are as a species on this planet and uh, we have the technologies we need to transition away from fossil fuels. It's just, uh, I think we have to do it faster than by 2050, for example. How did you react when you pined for some of these things to the U.S. Supreme Court ruling a six to three decision that was partisan that was viewed by the scientific community as devastating for humanity? It was an anti-science decision, which means it was basically a superstitious decision uh, based on other concerns other than reality, than physical reality. So um, it's extremely dangerous for um, our nation to be led by people who uh, are not only failing to understand the science, but are actively pushing their ideologies and their religious beliefs ahead of uh, science. Because Science is the, the the best way we have of understanding the physical reality 
of what's happening to life on Earth, what's happening to, to the universe, what's happening with physics and chemistry and biology. And um, we're, we're 8 billion people on this tiny little planet and we need the, the air, we need the food, we need the water, we need a livable climate in order to survive, in order to have civilization, in order for our bodies to be able to thermoregulate, especially when we're working hard outside or doing sports, for example. And to ignore what's happening physically, the reality on this planet is incredibly dangerous, especially since things are trending in one direction, right? We burn fossil fuels, that makes the planet hotter, that makes the heat waves worse, that makes the fires worse, that makes the strain on our food systems, decreasing crop yields worse, et cetera. So yeah, it's, it's um, as a scientist, it's just, I don't know, the, the words fail me, it's beyond tragic. It's, uh, it's just so weird that our leaders are, are the people in positions of power are ignoring reality. It's incredibly dangerous. What is the time frame when you say we don't have till 2050? Well, so it's, it's a sliding scale. So it's a, it's a little bit complicated to answer that question, but, um, it's 2022, uh, things are burning and boiling and melting faster than I expected. All right. That's my subjective experience of what's happening. Um, it feels to me already like an emergency. I'm in Southern California, so that's part of it. So I've experienced the heat with my own body. I've had, I see trees dying all around me here in Pasadena, Altadena, Los Angeles. I see trees, forests dying in the Sierra Nevada. I study coral reefs. I see them dying quite rapidly. We might have by mid-century, we, we are heading towards the planet essentially without corals. Um, so we are already in an emergency right now and it's getting worse every year. That's what really uh, basically terrifies me um, is that it's getting worse every year. World leaders aren't doing anything to stop it, uh, stop the, the damage. In fact, we're heading in the wrong direction, right? Which is expanding fossil fuels. Again, fossil fuels, is the primary driver of the global heating that we're experiencing, right? And world leaders are still expanding them. So we every year we keep expanding fossil fuels and every year we wait, every day we wait to ramp things down. It's going to cause more damage. It's locking in more damage, more suffering, more death, both for humans and for the rest of life on Earth. And, you know, we just that's why I think we, we have to enter into an emergency mode and start eliminating the cause of irreversible global heating as quickly as we can. The, the faster we do that, the more we'll save. How soon before we arrive at food shortages? No one really knows. So um, we do know that increasing global heat, increasing aridification in the West, increasing flooding in uh, several parts of crop producing regions around the world. Um, it's also increasing agricultural diseases and pests, right? They're kind of moving up into new domains. So um, what we do know is that yield decreases, um, potentially crop failures are going to start becoming more common. And uh, they can they can occur you know simultaneously in different agricultural regions, which will cause food prices to, to get much much more expensive, which could lead to famines and especially among the poor in the United States and among the poor worldwide. But we don't. It's very hard to predict exactly how that's going to play out. Without those predictions, though, it also makes it hard to reach people. Even as fire and flood, if fire and flood don't get people's attention as apocalyptic, I, I 
think food shortages would or water shortages. Yeah, you would think. Um, so <sighs> there, there are projections about how much worse heat waves are going to get in 2030s and 2040s under different climate scenarios. I don't, you know, you could you could talk about the probabilities of a one in 10 year heat wave in certain regions or a once per century heat wave in certain regions. I don't think that would reach your audience any better either, but it's all laid out in, in gory detail in the IPCC reports. I think the thing to understand, the, the key thing, there's a couple of key things to understand, okay? So one is that this is all pretty bad already. Um, if it hasn't affected any particular person uh, personally yet, yeah, it could very well happen later this summer or next year. You know, if you haven't experienced a heat wave, a really uncomfortable one, or lived in a smoke cloud for six weeks, all of these things will start getting worse, right? So what we have now is not a new normal. It's not like we've gotten into climate change and we're there now. Every year it's getting worse. Every day it's getting worse because it's caused by burning fossil fuels. And then another thing I want everyone to understand is that this is all effectively irreversible. So um, when you lose the Amazon rainforest, you don't get an Amazon rainforest back for, I don't know how long, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years. Um, when we get to a certain level of global heat, because we've added this long lived carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, uh, you know, once we turn off that carbon dioxide tap and we stop burning fossil fuels, it's not like the CO2 we've already emitted leaves the atmosphere. It stays up there for a very long time. So that whatever level we, whatever heat we allow the planet to get by burning fossil fuels, it's going to stay at that heat level for a very long time. So it's like we're ratcheting up into more and more dangerous territory and we don't, easily come back down from that in the future. So this is, um, we're locking in uh, a less livable, a degraded life support system on the planet for untold generations into the future. So when I when we talk about humanity's collective future, that's what we're really talking about. How is it possible that our leaders would ignore or accelerate something that is the end of the world, biggest news story anyone can imagine, the end of breathable air, the end of livable climate. So I encourage everyone to go to the website opensecrets.org and uh, look. So campaign contributions from the fossil fuel industry to politicians is uh, it's public record. Uh, it's just um, not discussed enough in the media. It's uh, I don't think the public understands it enough, but if it's it's a conflict of interest big enough to you know drive an entire planet through right i mean joe manchin's literally paid off by the fossil fuel industry to stop climate action it's it's insane and 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 then the democrats allow him to maintain his uh committee uh um leadership so i mean it's it's just insane that um you could have such a big conflict of interest that goes against uh the the sort of the the betterment the interests of all of us, of, of the 8 billion other people on the planet and future generations as well, uh, who don't even have a say. So yeah, that um, to, to me, it's just, you know, it's kind of a, a sort of madness that our suppose our Republic has gone so far away from being a democracy that, you know, you can have 
70% of people in this country saying that they want the government to, to do more to stop climate change. And yet the fossil fuel industries, the, the, the guys, the, the executives, the ultra rich people there, they're the ones that get to call the shots because they basically own the key politicians who could uh, stop that from happening. So that's not a democracy. That's a uh, planet killing kleptocracy. On the list of things that alarm you, and I don't know how you rank these things. I don't know yeah. how you compare a Supreme Court decision to a village being wiped out by flood. But when you see things exceeding even your scientific expectations for alarm, what are the things that cause the most alarm? Yeah, so uh, my, my list, basically my top three are just extreme humid heat. Um, so I think we're we're starting to push up against heat levels that are going to start arising around the planet that are too extreme for our bodies to deal with. And um, we're going to see, you know, in places around the world in coming years, I think um, heat waves that have mortality tolls, death tolls that far exceed anything that we've started to imagine yet. And I, I don't know exactly when and where that's going to happen and uh, exactly what year that's going to start happening. And, but, you know, every, again, every day we burn fossil fuels, we're getting closer to that level. And there are studies already projecting that by the end of the century under sort of carbon fossil fuel business as usual, a pretty huge swath of the, of around the equator. Right. So, um, we're talking billions of people will experience, you know, 300 plus days per year that are beyond deadly humid heat thresholds. And they're going to try to go closer to the poles. Um, so then that leads to another thing that I'm really concerned about, which is uh, just political destabilization. So essentially climate warfare. If you have a billion people trying to get out of places that, that that's too hot for their bodies, it's too hot for them to grow food, right? Which is the third thing that I'm worried about. We're already touched on that, which is just uh, global food supply, global food security. But if you have a billion people trying to get closer to the polls, what's that going to do to global geopolitics? What's that going to do to the rise of authoritarianism and fascism? Um, are we are we going to come together as a species to collectively deal with this crisis on our planet? Are we going to realize that we have a responsibility in the rich nations to to protect and provide refuge to the people who haven't caused this problem even a tiny little bit right so the disparity between the co2 per capita accumulated from emissions from the united states versus someplace like indonesia it's just insanely skewed right towards the rich countries and yet places like indonesia india uh other poor countries of the world are going to pay the highest price, you know, the most, the, the earliest, right? The earliest and the worst. So those are the three things that I worry about. And then there's a fourth, which is just loss of uh, ecosystems on the planet that I love so much. Uh, tropical forests, boreal forests, marine ecosystems like uh, the coral reefs. When you break down crying, talking to people in a moment that goes viral, is it the fear 
combined with, why am I not reaching you? What do I have to do? You're waving your arms. You're, you're telling people we're headed, we're already in, in drought and fire and flood, uh, but we're heading toward fighting over food and water. Yeah. So I think that the way our minds typically work is uh, we, we kind of respond to what's emotionally salient, right? And so people are worried about the economy right now. They're worried about uh, inflation. Um, I think they're over-concerned about gas prices, but that we have a tradition in this country to be very worried about that as well. And then there's just all the daily life things, right? Uh, you've got, you might have kids, you might have to worry about paying the rent. Um, you might be have issues at your job or whatever. So it's very easy to just kind of push aside these, these big things that are anxiety inducing, right? So if it's anxiety inducing, you already don't want it in your brain. Uh, and then um, you feel powerless to do anything about it. So you just don't want to think about it. And so you push it aside. And um, that's the, 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 the kind of torture that those of us, the, the scientists and the activists who do, do see what's coming, that we're experiencing every day. Like we, we see what's coming and it's coming quite fast uh, on geological timescales, right? On, you know, we don't usually see ice sheets melting this fast and we don't see temperatures increasing this fast. But uh, from a day-to-day -day point of view for that, for, you know, most people to, to talk about, uh, you know, 10th of a degree Celsius of global heating uh, in the mean per um, five years, that sounds slow to them. That's not something that they they will feel worried about. Um, and so, you know, 16 years as a climate activist, uh, only very recently have I been able to get some traction and has the movement been able to get some traction because the scientific projections, we saw this coming really like more than 100 years ago, okay? But you can't make people, uh, it's not emotionally salient enough when it's a scientific projection, something in the future. So that's a problem. And now we're starting to experience these disasters in real time. So it's becoming more emotionally salient, but not quickly enough. And then like we discussed, you have this incredibly powerful industry, the fossil fuel industry makes $3 billion every single day, trivially easy for them to pay off politicians. You know, I think uh, Joe Manchin's paid off to like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. It's a tiny amount of money as far as the fossil fuel industry is concerned. They, they you know, colluded to put out disinformation to confuse the public, to make it seem like there wasn't scientific consensus when there was. The media played along. Um, the media didn't understand the science. Um, maybe some of them were controlled by Rupert Murdoch and other billionaires, and they, they also wanted to create confusion. But they made it seem like there was it was still unsettled science when it was completely settled science. Um, and so we're still kind of dealing with the fallout from that. And then you had political tribalism, you know, you have one political party in this country that still feels like it's a hoax, which it totally isn't. Um, so yeah, it's very, we have to break through this somehow. I don't see a way to stop this until the public has a much stronger sense of urgency, unfortunately. And it's very hard to, to do that. I think the media now, for example, we're having this conversation, the media is starting to get on board with the fact that this is an emergency and that's going to make a huge difference. Once enough of the public agrees that this is an emergency and that should be a very high priority, then 
our political so-called leaders because uh, they basically follow us and they follow corporate money. <laughs> but they'll finally pro hopefully start to do something. And then, like I said at the beginning of this talk, it's not hard to know what to do. We just need to have the will to do it. We have to realize that this is a life or death emergency. What other things are important for us to do other than cut back on fossil fuels? So roughly 80% of global heating, the planet's overheating, is caused by fossil fuels. And most of the other 20% is from industrial animal agriculture. So we need to ramp that down too. The good news is, you know, none of us will die from eating less meat. I mean, we we don't, maybe we don't want to eat less meat, but when it's a choice between that and essentially losing our planet's life support capacity, I think the answer, once we accept that that's what's happening, I think the answer should be quite clear. Um, but obviously we need policies to do that. We can't expect people to just uh, voluntarily stop doing it, right? Um, and then there's one other really key thing, which is that, to transition away from fossil fuels, we, I mean, fossil fuels run our lives, let's face it. They run most of our cars, they run airplanes, they run our electrical system, they they heat our homes, uh, They, for a lot of us, they cook our food. So to transition away from that, if we do it in a way that we reduce the supply and we allow the, the same rich people, the same executives to control that supply, as they're controlling it now, what will happen is the price will go through the roof. Like if if we try to reduce the overall supply of fossil fuel right now, um, the, the way things are set up now, a gallon of gas is going to go way higher than what it has over the last six months, right? So, so basically, we ain't say nothing yet if that's the way we transition. But we don't have to transition that way. We could say like this fossil fuel energy, we have to ramp it down really quickly. It's a public good. It's something, it's a basically national security interest. This is a clear and present danger. We have to basically finance this transition on the back of the rich people who've, who create, you know, orders of magnitude more carbon dioxide emission with their multiple homes, their private jets, et cetera. So we basically have to tax the rich, um, ramp down the supply, but keep the price fixed, all right? And um, ration it out so uh, on a schedule so people know, you know, I've got, I've got to get rid of the giant vehicle that I have and replace it with something that burns less gas or maybe an electric vehicle, because five years from now, my, my gasoline ration is going to be less, for example. I don't really see another way out of it. But if, if energy prices uh, become so high that working class people can't afford to live anymore, they will become extremely opposed to any climate action and any such climate action will fail, right? The biggest thing we have to do is to ramp down the fossil fuel industry. The last thing we want is for the electorate to uh, to basically revolt against that, like they did in France a couple of years ago when there was a gasoline tax imposed, all right? So, um, and that's the thing that, that really kind of bugs me about all of this. You have the you have President Biden, you have the rich people in charge, you've got the Koch brothers, you've got the fossil fuel CEOs and lobbyists, and they don't seem willing to give up even a dime of their profits. They they want to just like expand the industry. They want to, to use expansion to lower gas prices. And then guess what? These executives get more and more and more money at our expense, at the planet's, planet's expense, and that's wrong. So we're still thinking about this 
in terms of a profit-driven sort of capitalist system that takes and takes and takes from the people and transfers that wealth to the, the ultra-rich. I just really don't see a way out of this unless we fix that system and transition to an, an economy that puts basically people's interests first instead of uh, corporate and the ultra-rich. You are speaking science. You are speaking, in many cases, facts and data. And many people are going to hear this and call you a lefty snowflake political loon. I, I don't understand that because it's in their own interest to transfer wealth from the ultra rich. I mean, we're talking billionaires. So whether you're on the left or the right in the working class, you have to start realizing that the real problem is the ultra rich. And they've just been extracting so much. And they, they're, they're basically using economic growth, like we have to grow GDP, as a way to like give some scraps to the working class people, right? We could have a much, much better economic system that was much better for the majority of people. It'd, it'd be a little bit worse for rich people, but I think it would be in their long-term interest too, because it's the way we could still continue having civilization. So um, I just, I thought about it very deeply and I just, I don't see a way to turn down the spigot of the fossil fuel industry. I mean, obviously we have to ramp up renewables. I, I hope that that's something we can all agree on, right? Because we have an alternative to power our, uh, our, our entire economy and our lives, basically. Some things will be hard there, like flying in airplanes. We can't do that with um, renewables yet because the, batter the, the battery energy density, batteries are basically still too heavy to fly in planes and cross oceans, right? You can, you can have electric planes for very small flights right now, but, um, I think we we also need to instead of just building out renewables, which is barely uh, keeping pace with the growth in overall energy consumption, right? We have to deal with that the energy demand problem too, and start turning down how much energy we use because again, it's a race against how much we can still save on this planet, right? Every day of emissions, every fraction of a degree that the planet gets hotter. It's locking in more of the stuff that we're seeing now. It's gonna make it all get worse. So, so I know it's a, it's hard to say um, we have to rethink our economic systems. And I know that's not, you, those aren't the scientific facts, but when I just, I just, my head's constantly spinning. I'm lying in bed at night and thinking about this and thinking about this every day. And I just don't see a way to get out of this uh, unless we sort of take care of the interests of the working class, whether that means Republicans or Democrats, it doesn't matter um, what side of the political spectrum. I mean, the working class is the majority of us and we need to protect them. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13.
Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. How do you sleep? You know, I feel like I'm doing everything I can do. And um, what more can I do? I mean, if I'm if I fall down into depression and despair, um, I won't be as effective as as I as I could be if I if I did wasn't completely full of despair. Right? I I've experienced depression when I was younger, when I was in my twenties, and to me it was completely debilitating. I, I you know couldn't do anything. So. Um, so yeah, I, I know I'm doing what I can. And then I feel tremendous solidarity with some of the other scientists and some of the other activists. And they're just, they're selfless people. They're courageous people. They're um, visionary people. They're putting the needs of the planet and the collective um, in front of their own needs and taking a stand, sometimes at significant risks to themselves. And these are activists around the world. So to stand side by side with them gives me hope, gives me courage, gives me strength. You don't feel lonely? Not anymore. <laughs> For like out of my 16 or 17 years as a, like a really concerned climate activist, the last couple of years, I, yeah, I don't feel lonely. You realize your message gets hurt, right? By not being able to answer those when and where questions, right? Because I do think more people would be paying attention if somehow science could tell them, hey, it's not the end of the century. And you are telling us that, but it's right here. Like it's happening right now in your face and it's not going to get better. It, there is no way for it to get better. It's not going to magically in a couple of years. Well, the fickle nature changed the heat and people didn't die. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point, actually. So my newest science project uh, is with this incredible team. They're, somewhat, they're, they're the best at what they do in their specialty. So it feels like I'm at the start of a heist movie. Uh, we've got like a medical record statistician expert. We have an expert in air conditioning. We have experts in what's something called statistical downscaling and, and other statistical elements. So what, what I'm starting to embark on is to look at projections of extreme humid heat around the world at extremely high resolution using satellite data. So we've we've this project's been going for a couple of months. So watch this space. So we should be able to make maps of very high resolution that show, you know, by what year, how many days per year will be above this deadly threshold versus that one, right? There's different thresholds. We have to relate the extreme humid heat to the body uh, through medical records, basically. So, you know, if you're outside working hard or going on a run, you you know, you're more exposed than if you're resting. Um, if you're if you have comorbidities, you're more exposed than if you don't. If you're very elderly, etc. So it's it's complicated, but. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, this isn't, let's just say this is an area of active research and watch this space. Drought and fire are obvious, but you would tell the audience best guess based on the fact that science projected this would be pretty bad and it's worse. 10 years from now, how will life look different for the people looking or listening to this if they don't, if we don't do anything? Yeah, again, it's, <laughs> so one of the reasons it's so hard to make these kinds of predictions 
is because you know we kind of know how much hotter the planet's getting uh, we i think we were taken by surprise by the heat dome uh, up in the pacific northwest if you guys remember that um so you know we we know very well how how fast the planet's heating up on average how fast the oceans are heating up on average we're, we have less uh kind of grasp on exactly when and where intense heat waves are going to go down but we're we're working on that and then we we have even less kind of understanding of how our complex social and sort of i guess you could call them human systems you know agricultural systems water systems infrastructure systems political systems uh, insurance systems and economic systems right all of that stuff that we rely on for this deeply interconnected global society to function uh, we don't know exactly how those things how or when those things are going to respond to this increasing wildfire right? we're already seeing places that used to be insured against wildfire now people can't get insurance anymore same thing with floods right so it's if you live in a floodplain it's getting harder and harder the insurance costs are rising um the housing market doesn't seem to have responded yet to these stressors right so you you know people are still snapping up homes in miami i i think and i i wouldn't buy there uh, in in a you know, coastal flooding zone but people still are so there's very like these kinds of systems have haven't started responding to the um to, to what's happening on the planet right you, you're seeing melting runways melting streets um but I, what one thing i can say and i know this is unsatisfying if you the analogy i like to think of if you're pushing against a wall just like imagine a wall in a field and you have like you know a digger arm pushing against it and you're gradually increasing the amount of force against that wall. You know that at some point that wall is going to collapse, but you can't really predict exactly when and how much force, right? It's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen unpredictably. And I, I feel like we're in a similar situation here. Like we know that the forces that are being applied to our civilization are increasing every day, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and at some point it's going to be too much. And it's very hard to tell exactly when and how that's going to unfold. What is the video or videos over the last few years that come across your desk and you are like, beyond fire and flooding, holy shit, like all of this, it's just happening too fast and you want to run out into the street and, and show everybody like, don't you can't ignore this. We can't ignore this. So I think for me, the, 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 the stuff that really hits me hard that I think most people don't kind of know about is when forests are dying and other ecosystems are dying. So when I see a new paper about, you know, some losses in some ecosystem, it just breaks my heart. And um, it just feels like almost like a death by a thousand cuts on this planet. Like we're losing biodiversity so quickly and we're losing ecosystems so quickly. And yet the pressures that are causing that are only increasing. So, see, so yeah, I, feel, I feel a sense of panic that we're, still accelerating basically in the wrong direction and um you know and there's all these economic forces there's all these developers who want to develop and make money and and you know knock down more places even when we desperately need to preserve those places expand agriculture expand development um and you know it's all driven by fossil fuels as well so it just keeps getting hotter so yeah it's it's kind of all of it together and this 
this what I desperately want to see is um, for humanity to switch its direction and to start to, to start going in the right direction, right? To, to basically acknowledge that this is a very small planet and it's a lot more delicate than we thought. The climate system is more delicate than we thought. The biosphere, all these interconnected animals and plants and fungi and bacteria, it's so incredibly complex. It's To me, it's like a, almost a magical thing, the way it interlocks and works together. So in, the, in that vein, what you see happening in Brazil when the Amazon is open for business, you you, you want to go fight people. Basically, yeah. And it's it's just also very weird that we still divide up the map into all these you know, nations, and this is a global problem. And the the international coordination for dealing with these global problems, like who who really kind of quote unquote owns the Amazon, right? Should one should one politician, should one you know, autocrat in Brazil be able to make the decision that the whole planet no longer has an Amazon rainforest anymore, right? Um, so I know that's a, it's a weird thing to say, but there has to be some kind of way to create, you know, international treaties to basically, um, I, I guess you could kind of say buy buy off the, uh, you know, the people of Brazil. Like they 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 deserve something for protecting the Amazon. But then you you also need satellite systems to ensure that such treaties would be being followed. So it's it's a kind of heartbreakingly complicated problem, and there's not a lot of time left. And it seems like if anything, we're heading towards less international cooperation rather than more. So yeah, it's very, to me, it's very concerning. What is scarier? Is it the rainforest or, or the depletion of the rainforest? Or is it the, the, the reporting you get from the Arctic of icebergs melting uh, too fast and going to create water displacement that can't be handled by the globe? Yeah, you, you got, I guess you have to sort of pick your poison. I mean, it's all concerning to me. The most concerning thing of all is that we have all of this happening at the same time. So temperature is incredibly fundamental variable that affects everything, affects our bodies, affects all the other plants and animals on the planet, affects the ice, affects how much water vapor the atmosphere can hold, which is why we're getting these stronger storms, affects how you know, hurricanes interact with the upper layers of the ocean, which basically are the thermal engine that drives them. So as global heating increases, all of this stuff starts to change. And it's it's all it's it's all being driven at the same time because of one fundamental planetary variable, which is temperature. How did you become a scientist? I from an early age, I loved science fiction. <laughs> like Spock was one of my heroes. And uh um, I love space. I love physics in high school. So uh, I kind of knew I always wanted to be a scientist. And I went to graduate school for physics and started uh, studying astrophysics. And I was completely curious about, you know, cosmology, where what the very early universe was like. Um, but then uh, I got started getting so concerned about climate change while I was in a postdoc uh, searching for gravitational waves um, that I I just was too distracted. I couldn't concentrate on astrophysics anymore. And so I had to switch into climate science. How hard is it to become a NASA scientist? Um, I mean, you need a PhD in earth science or a related field like physics. And you just have to, you know, I think it's kind of maybe similar to being uh, an elite athlete or an elite musician in the sense that 
or writer or a lot of these things that are really hard to kind of get to, to higher levels, you have to want it so much that you can almost not imagine doing something else. At least that's, that was kind of my experience. Like I just, man, I got to do this and just keep working and working and working until it happens. You wanted it that much. And then what specifically happened that made you veer differently? Was there one thing? I mean, you told us the general, but do you remember it is a moment where you've wanted this one thing all your life and you're like, no, I got to help over here. It was, uh, you know, it was just kind of a, a, a built up over a couple of years um, when I was like sitting in my office and I'm like, I should be reading papers about gravitational waves. And instead, here I am reading papers about climate change. And so it eventually dawned on me that that wasn't going to go away, just like climate change isn't going to go away. So I should make the switch. Um, it's I, 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 I personally find it easier to look this stuff directly kind of directly in the face instead of like having it in my peripheral vision uh, that would be harder for me psychologically to know that it's happening but just to have this feeling of anxiety in my gut and to not to, to have it be kind of blurry and not really sort of have a good understanding of what's happening so to be able to study a day in and day out and to to actually start being able to uh, maybe make a little bit of a difference in terms of how society views what's happening and to increase that sense of urgency. To me, that's in some ways uh, a less uh, difficult path than to be tr trying to focus on astrophysics when, you know, I, I had this kind of intensifying concern about climate change. Life would be easier if you knew less, no? I can't turn it off. I mean, maybe that's <laughs> maybe it's because I'm a scientist, but uh, there's once you know, you can't go back and um, you know, I I do want to say too that I feel incredibly grateful to um, to this planet <laughs> and to and I love I just love forests and mountains uh, especially and uh, um, they've given me so much over the course of my life. Um, obviously, every breath we take of air is, you know, speaking as an astrophysicist, compared to other planets where we don't have. Uh, this air to breathe, it's it's almost miraculous that we do. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I just don't really take that for granted. Um, and I have a sense that it's, again, you know, more delicate and more fragile and more, more open to loss than I used to think. And that I, I guess I would say most people think so. Um, so yeah, in some ways, it's actually a great honor to, to be uh, it's, and I find it very meaningful to be able to, um, to, to do this kind of work. I hear the love and awe and emotion in the simple gratitude of how you view earth. Yeah. I mean, without earth, we don't have anything. So all our other dreams as a species, all of our hopes for progress, all depends on having a livable planet. I mean, we're not, let's face it, it's a, just a fiction to think that we could uproot ourselves and go to Mars. I mean, Mars really sucks. It's it's uh, colder than the Antarctic. It has very, very little water. It's bombarded by radiation constantly. Um, it doesn't have any trees or food or air. I mean, it's really, really terrible place. And uh, it'd be far, far easier for us to stop uh, the climate breakdown happening on Earth than to move 8 billion people to Mars. It's just it's laughable. It's, it's funny that I even have to push back against that. So yeah, I, I love it here. 
um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Earth. We have spent this time together and all this time trying to inform the people, and the only thing that will get aggregated here, perhaps costing you your job, is Mars really sucks. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great place to study, but I wouldn't want to live there. I should say too, Dan, it's important to, to note that I'm speaking on my own behalf here. <laughs> I, I uh, these are my these are my opinions. Okay, and, uh, <laughs> part, partly as a citizen, partly as a father, um, and just uh, just as a person living on this planet. Peter, don't walk it back. Mars sucks. Like double down on it. Uh, don't 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 get scared of it. You're speaking on behalf of. Yeah, I just felt like the the interview was wrapping up, and I meant to say that at the beginning. I I don't I Mars sucks. It really does. Okay, as a place to, live. to reiterate to to reiterate, yeah. we are not going to be living on Mars. You have done the research. You've done the work. You you've studied uh, space and Earth. We're not living on Mars. That's not a solution. It's definitely not a solution. I mean, maybe a thousand years from now, there will be a, a station there. Maybe, I don't know, 200 years from now, if we get through this, uh, this, this kind of climate emergency. Peter, thank you for being on with us. We do appreciate uh, the illumination, gloomy and depressing though it is. And do any of the other planets suck? You know, I love them as planets, but no, there's no place else I'd rather live than Earth. And again, I think that if we all come together and start treating this like an emergency, things could change incredibly fast. And, uh, you know, I would, I'd, I'd hope very much that five years from now, we could be having a very different conversation where humanity has turned a corner and is really starting to do the right thing. Speak on behalf of yourself and NASA, fuck Venus. Like I'm not, I'm not here. I'm, I don't like that planet. It's not as bad as Mars, but I Venus overrated. <laughs> and what about Pluto? I don't know. You rank them. What are the, what are the worst of the planets? You go ahead and rank them. Top five worst planets. <laughs> They all suck for human habitation except for Earth. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right, very good. Basically, basically equally. <laughs> Peter, thank you for being on with us. We appreciate it, sir. Okay, thank you. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.